This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Jane Newberger. Dr. Newberger is the Associate Chief of Cardiology at Boston Children's Hospital and the Commonwealth Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Jane, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, Dr. Newberger, you're known for your academic work over the last several decades on neurodevelopmental outcomes after congenital heart repair and, um, and congenital heart disease. And I wonder if you could tell us uh, where, where has the field been, what do we know, and where are we going? Sure. A pleasure. So um, we have had improving outcomes in every form of congenital heart disease from the 70s through, you know, the current time, so that we now expect babies to survive. And that is very different from how it was 40 years ago. Uh, and with that improving survival, it's become evident that we have a problem with neurodevelopmental outcomes in many of our patients. So actually, behavioral, developmental, and neurologic abnormalities are the most common morbidity that's associated with congenital heart disease. And it's more common in the CHD population than late sudden death, uh, significant exercise limitations, significant arrhythmias, unplanned reoperations in endocarditis all together. Mm. Um, and uh, if we look at the complexity of congenital heart disease, that is highly associated with the likelihood of having neurodevelopmental challenges. Children with the mildest forms of congenital heart disease are the least likely uh, to have um, neurodevelopmental impairment, whereas those who are the most severe or palliated newborns um, have the greatest proportion with neurodevelopmental impairments. Um, the highest prevalence of all, not surprisingly, is in children with genetic abnormalities. So Jane, what are the risk factors for neurodevelopmental problems? So um, there are many. The first lie in the genetic sphere. Um, up to a third of forms of congenital heart disease are now recognized to be caused by genetic variants. Uh, and these can be aneuploidies, where you have a whole extra chromosome, like Down syndrome, uh, microduplication or microdeletion syndromes like DeGeorge or velocardiofacial syndrome. And then single gene disorders. Uh, we, we recently found that de novo point mutations actually contribute up to 10% of severe congenital heart disease in, in um, whole exome analyses. Um, we also know that other congenital abnormalities occur in almost 14% of children who have congenital heart defects. And um, if you look at the likelihood uh, of having uh, excess probands with um, de novo, with these de novo variants, 
whereas controls, maybe 1% of us have these, and it's the luck of the draw where they fall. So in the Pediatric Cardiac Genomics Consortium, uh, we did whole exome sequencing in over 1,200 trios of parents and children. And these damaging de novo mutations were seen in 20% of children with congenital heart disease, neurodevelopmental abnormalities, and congenital anomalies, compared to just 2% in children with isolated congenital heart disease. And those findings suggest uh, that these problems have a shared genetic contribution. Um, another very important cause uh, that is a hot topic of investigation uh, are derangements in fetal circulation or fetal cerebral hemodynamics. Um, in a study that was done here at Boston Children's by Kathy Limperopoulos in 2010, uh, pregnant women underwent uh, scans, so the fetuses had brain MRIs. Uh, at multiple points in time, and those fetuses had either congenital heart disease or they were unaffected by congenital heart disease. And what we saw was that total brain volume uh, did not increase as quickly in the congenital heart population. Mm -hmm. So there, although it's a cross-sectional study, there seemed to be slower brain growth. In doing spectroscopy, the N-acetyl-aspartate to choline ratio, uh, which ordinarily has kind of an exponential curve in the third trimester, uh, also did not increase as rapidly. And the children with the most impaired values were those that didn't have any antegrade arch flow, uh, like what you see in hypoplastic left heart syndrome. We know that after birth, um, children have more dysmature brains. So a study that was done by Dan Licht compared the total maturation score of the brain at birth by MRI uh, in children with transposition of the great arteries and other uh, severe congenital anomalies to normal total brain maturation uh, at term. And what he found was that these children were about a month behind on average so their brains are actually dismature, and they start this out before they even undergo any interventions, so about a month behind. Then, of course, there are the sequelae of congenital heart disease itself. Uh, chronic severe cyanosis is a risk factor uh, for developmental delay. A lot of our children don't have good nutrition if they're in chronic heart failure. Cardiac arrests occur, significant arrhythmias, and all of these can impact development. Um, we did a study, I'm embarrassed to say, was in the 80s, in which we analyzed old data from the Regional Infant Cardiac Program, uh, which was instituted in New England in the 70s, where all the medical data was gathered about children, and then a wonderful psychologist named Annette Silbert, who was then working here, went out to each center and tested the children before they entered kindergarten. And um, this was the same era in which children with transposition uh, were undergoing the mustard procedure at different ages depending on their center. Uh, and what we found is that uh, the later you were repaired, 
the worse uh, your IQ uh, and each of the components of your IQ. Uh, and that was highly significant even when you adjusted for social class and other variables. So chronic cyanosis, we know, is an important factor. Dr. Newberg, I wonder if I could pause and ask you, could you remind the audience what a mustard procedure uh, was? Oh, and still and, is. And still is in some places. So a mustard procedure is done in, in was done in children with transposition of the great arteries uh, in which the pulmonary artery comes off the left ventricle and the aorta comes off the right ventricle. So uncorrected, you have two, two circulations that are happening in parallel rather than series. In the modern day, we do an arterial switch in which we do -si do the two great arteries so they come off the, the correct ventricle. But in the early days of cardiac surgery, the technology to do that wasn't available. And so a mustard procedure is what's called an atrial switch procedure where you place a baffle uh, in the atrium, so all the blood coming back from the IVC and SVC is funneled to the mitral valve, and blood coming back from the pulmonary veins goes around that baffle and out into the right ventricle, as shown in the figure. We also know that children with congenital heart disease can have silent strokes or overt strokes, uh, and uh, sometimes when a child comes in, with an acute stroke and you do a scan, you see multiple other areas uh, that were affected and nobody actually ever knew about it. Um, we know that the interventions that we do, such as um, cardiac surgery and cardiac cath, are each associated with sequelae. Uh, they're necessary. Uh, Janet Soul. Uh, some years ago looked at brain MRIs in one of our studies and was the first to describe these little hemosiderin lesions. Uh, so about, depending on the lesion, a quarter to a third of children who have open heart surgery in infancy have these tiny little microhemorrhages that actually look a lot like what you get with a shaken baby. And they're associated with how long you're on the heart-lung machine and also how many cardiac catheterizations you have. So the cardiologists don't get off scot-free here either. Um, we know that the duration of being on the heart-lung machine or bypass is a risk factor that the longer you're on the heart-lung machine, uh, as beautifully demonstrated by John Becca, the longer you're on, the greater, uh, the greater the prevalence of white matter injury uh, and uh, that especially goes up when you get to very long times and severe injury becomes more common. Um, we also know in, in fascinating information uh, that if you have a less mature brain going into surgery, you have a higher likelihood of white matter injury. So we know that you're born with some white matter injury. Maybe 20% uh, of newborns have white matter injury before they ever go to the operating room. And about 40% have new white matter injury after surgery. But the children who have the most dismature brains to start with are the ones who are most at risk for this. 
And that actually has implications in terms of the timing of elective delivery. So uh, sometimes obstetricians feel that it's better to do a planned delivery and they do a C-section or a induced delivery early, but that has implications that are adverse for how the brain handles surgery. And so we have an advocacy role in trying to keep those babies inside for as long as we can. So millions of dollars of NIH uh, funding have gone into uh, studying intraoperative conduct because it's the most modifiable risk factor that we have. The surgeon can manipulate the heart-lung machine. Uh, but we've recently come to realize that a huge source of neurologic injury actually occurs after surgery. Uh, and this relates to a time period when you have significant postoperative hemodynamic instability. When one uses hypothermic bypass techniques, uh, an infant will lose the ability to autoregulate their cerebrovascular circulation, uh, and they don't have normal reactivity to carbon dioxide. So in that first 24 hours, they're exquisitely vulnerable to hypotension uh, and also to decrease cardiac index. And that's led uh, to a tremendous focus on brain monitoring, which I'll come back to. Um, we also know from the Boston Circulatory Arrest Study uh, where children with transposition were randomly assigned to either deep predominant deep hypothermic circulatory arrest or predominant low flow bypass. Uh, and in that study, we meticulously, exhaustively collected every piece of data, everything that happened to the child during that hospitalization. We then, when they returned, courtesy of the NIH at age eight years, looked at the effect of length of stay in the cardiac ICU on uh, their IQ. And what we found is that there was an, a linear decrease uh, in IQ with each quartile of longer length of stay. So verbal IQ went down, full-scale IQ went down, and because this was an exhaustively done prospective study, we also were able to adjust for all the potential confounders or effect modifiers. And even when we adjusted for the known predictors of longer CICU stay, like sepsis and other variables like social class that are universally predictive of your developmental outcome, uh, this was still highly statistically significant. Uh, and uh, really in the range of effect between the first versus fourth quartile of what you might see with lead poisoning. If you deleted the top 5% of length of stay patients, so the real outliers, then each CICU day led to a reduction of 1.4 points in full-scale IQ and 1.6 points in math achievement, just to give you an, an idea. Um, lest you think that this is only a factor for transposition, uh, another great study was done by Bill Malley, involved four centers, and their question was whether uh, IQ is better, whether developmental outcomes were better if one uh, had a primary transplant versus staged palliation strategy for children 
under, uh, with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. So did you go down the Norwood to Fontan pathway or did you go down the transplant pathway? And it turned out not to make a difference, but what the only thing that really mattered was longer length of stay at the first surgery. So, and the same finding has been reproduced in every study, pretty much. Uh, so Dr. Newberg, I have to ask you, I'm sure many of my colleagues around the world are wondering the same thing I am, and that is cyanosis as a risk factor for neuro, poor neuro, neurodevelopmental outcomes. Is there a saturation or a saturation and duration that in your head, when you see that, you think, oh dear, I'm worried, whereas a saturation you know, above X, you're less worried? Um, the studies on the effect of cyanosis on neurodevelopment were done in unoperated transposition patients, and those children had saturations in the 60s and 70s. We don't have any studies that are modern that really tell us where the cut point is uh, and whether having a saturation of 85%, for example, is just fine. We don't know for sure. In general, for, for reasons of hemodynamic stability, we get pretty uncomfortable if a saturation is below 75%, and ideally we like it to be above 80%. From a neurodevelopmental viewpoint, if you could wave the magic wand and make everybody completely pink uh, with no um, adverse effects of the treatment, then of course we would make everybody pink. But what we do is kind of the, the teeter-totter method of decision-making, which is we balance the risks of intervening uh, against the benefits. And so the effect of cyanosis on the brain is one of the risks that we consider, but we also consider what kinds of effects the therapies that we might initiate could have on the brain. So could I ask as a follow-up, do you worry about oxygen saturations uh, in the 80s? Nobody has studied the effect of saturations in the 80s on neurodevelopment or brain injury. Um, we all have anecdotal impressions. I certainly know lots of very smart kids with saturations in the mid to high 80s, but nobody has actually scientifically studied it. Uh, Dr. Newberg, I wonder if I could ask again, um, uh, cardiopulmonary bypass as a risk factor, as you've just described it. So I can't help but be sitting here thinking and remembering how I would be giving uh, you know, the report the next morning on rounds and talking about the circa rest time. And is there a number uh, in the literature or, or do you have a cut point from your vast experience where you start to think, oh dear, that was a long bypass run, that circa rest time was just a little too long and you start to worry? I, I don't think there is any specific hard and fast cut point. Um, there are a lot of unknowns. We know, in general, a good and fast operation is much better for the brain than a slow and bad operation. Uh, that's pretty obvious that we, and, and part of that is we want the hemodynamic stability after surgery to be good with a good repair. And so there's a lot of variability in times and speed. There's also variability in um, the ways that you support the brain from the time you go on bypass till the time you come off. Some individuals, uh, we usually cool the temperature down 
how cold that temperature gets is there's tremendous operator dependence with some people taking the temperature down to 18 degrees centigrade and others to 25 centigrade. Uh, when we use deep hypothermic circulatory arrest, what you do is you cool the body uh, down to below 18 degrees, and then you basically exsanguinate that baby into a venous reservoir, remove the cannulae. You're operating on a totally clean, bloodless, cannula-free field, uh, and it's great for visibility. Uh, if you can do that surgery in less than half an hour, uh, the shorter period, the better, but I think once you get to 30 or 40 minutes, in all likelihood, that risk goes up somewhat. Uh, and when it, the times get very long, for example, to over an hour, then we become very concerned. Um, it isn't as cut and dry as you would think because there are many other factors about how you regulate the heart-lung machine, uh, whether you put in carbon dioxide or not when you're cooling, uh, what the hematocrit is, um, and, and such, that can affect brain protection. And so it, it really is an extraordinarily complex field in and of its, its own. What I would say is that we just did uh, a study of 1,700 children from multiple countries uh, who had already been part of either published or in a couple of cases not yet published series and looked at surgical risk factors. And although we looked at every aspect, like circulatory arrest time, and regional cerebral perfusion time where you're perfusing the brain at a, a lower rate during surgery, um, we found that they're all highly related to each other and no variable did better than total support time, meaning the time you go on the pump till the time you come off the pump. Uh, so Jane, could I push a little further? After your paper came out in the New England Journal of Medicine about um, comparing the outcomes of deep hypothermic circulatory arrest to um, other forms of bypass, um, did the use of deep hypothermic circulatory arrest decrease? It did. It decreased around the country in general. But importantly, there are some operations like the Norwood procedure where um, one can't continue flow to the whole body during the operation. And there, uh, I, I would say investigators are very interested in the trade-offs of deep hypothermic circulatory arrest where there's no flow compared to regional cerebral perfusion where there is anagrade flow uh, of blood just to the brain. Uh, and very conflicting data regarding which one is better with a lot of true belief uh, on both sides of the equation. <laughs> Most of the data, as, as I mentioned, suggested that the total support time may be the most important risk factor. In summary then, risk factors for adverse outcomes include patient factors. Uh, examples are genetic variants in utero environment and cerebral hemodynamics or family environment. Second, medical or surgical management, for example, uh, your procedural uh, methods during surgery, complications, instability after surgery. And then finally, sequelae of the heart disease itself, like cyanosis, malnutrition, or cardiac arrest. We recommend that all children with congenital heart disease who undergo either reparative or palliative procedures 
should be presumed to be at increased neurodevelopmental risk unless there is convincing evidence otherwise. Also, increased neurodevelopmental surveillance should be a routine part of follow-up of, of children with congenital heart disease. And the reason for this uh, is so that emerging difficulties can be identified and, of course, appropriate supportive interventions implemented. Um, Dr. Newberg, that's a fascinating overview of the risk factors. Uh, so now I'm sure I speak for my colleagues when I ask, what, what is the phenotype? What, how do they manifest these neurodevelopmental delays? The areas of weakness in congenital heart disease patients have been really well studied. First of all, there often are delays in motor skills, both gross motor and fine motor. And in, in infants, in children who've had infant heart surgery, uh, they have apraxia of speech. And if you think about the area of the brain that's developing the most rapidly in a newborn, it's, it's the oromotor function. They have to suck. And uh, so the motor planning part of speech can be affected. Uh, visual spatial skills are another area of concern. Vigilance and sustained attention. Higher order language. So not so much can you talk, but can you tell a story uh, when you're shown a number of pictures? And then um, extremely important is executive function. So working memory, the ability to hold on to information and perform, perform operations on it, hypothesis generation and testing, organizing and um, carrying out complex uh, kind of multi-step tasks, and applying principles to solve problems. Um, we know that in our transposition study, in the Boston Circulatory Arrest Study, we brought children back, again courtesy of the NIH, at age 16 years, uh, and we tested their memory with something called the children's memory scale. And compared to normative values and a comparison a healthy population within Boston, these children had worse attention concentration, worse learning, and worse general memory. Uh, we also had uh, a, a survey called the BRIEF, which is a behavior rating inventory of executive function that was completed by parents, the children, and teachers that also showed worse executive function uh, in the cardiac population. Uh, David Bellinger at Boston Children's uh, was the first to describe deficits in social cognition in children uh, with congenital heart disease. And social cognition is the processing of social information, interpreting social relationships uh, and social situations that you might be in, and the ability to read uh, the emotions of other people and make inferences about what they're feeling. Uh, and we administered something called the Mind in the Eyes test. And as you see in this, this uh, example, there are screenshots of eyes and facial expressions. And there are four choices for each expression. So in this particular one, you could be aghast, bored, insisting, or cautious. And the answer is cautious. Um, these are really hard to do. So there's a bell-shaped distribution with some very, very smart people not having a lot of skills in this domain of interpreting facial expressions. But um, 
the average score of children with transposition or tetralogy of Fallot uh, is way at the lower end of the bell-shaped distribution. A very hot topic right now is looking at connections between areas of the brain in the resting state, and that's called the connectome. And uh, we took these same data uh, from children, um, adolescents with transposition, and collaborated with Ashok Panagrahi, who is the chief of radiology at Pittsburgh Children's Hospital and a neuroradiologist with an interest in this area. And what we found, uh, and you can see this in the figure, is that you can divide the brain into subhemispheres. When we study the resting state, we uh, look at subhemispheres and the connections within them, for example, anterior, posterior, right and left. Uh, and then we look at the connections and the density of connections between those subhemispheres. And what we found was that there were more intrahemispheric or subnetwork connections in the children with transposition, but way fewer connections between these uh, subhemispheres or subnetworks. Uh, and uh, the connections themselves were associated with certain developmental uh, abnormalities. So executive function, for example, is worse if you don't have a lot of connections between subnetworks. Dr. Neuberger, um, of course, uh, all of these studies, as you well know, because you've explained this to me over the decades, uh, concerned uh, children who had two ventricles. And, uh, and of course, in the modern era, the, the real challenge is for the child born with what we call single ventricle physiology. What do we know about their neurodevelopmental outcome? So as, as you're suggesting, this is the group at highest risk. They have the highest likelihood of genetic abnormalities. They, all, they have congenital CNS uh, abnormalities. They're the most likely uh, to have been in shock and to be chronically blue, to have congestive heart failure. Growth is a huge problem in this group, uh, with somewhere between a half to a quarter in most series having G-tubes. Uh, and they have multiple catheterizations and operations, so many risk factors. Um, in the single ventricle reconstruction trial, which was a pediatric heart network study done across 15 centers, we brought children back at a year, 14 months to be exact, to do the Bailey exam. And the average population should have a, a mean score or median score of 100 uh, with a standard deviation of about 15. These children on their psychomotor development score had a median score of 72, uh, which is almost two standard deviations below the average scores in the general population. For the mental development index, which is a kind of a precognitive index, the uh, median score was better at 92 uh, compared to the 100 that it should be. We found that those scores at 14 months were most related to innate patient factors, like having a genetic syndrome or anomalies, lower maternal education, and lower birth weight, and also to greater morbidity in the first year of life. So longer time 
after the Norwood in the hospital, so longer length of stay comes up again, and more complications after discharge from the Norwood until 12 months. If we fast forward to three years, these children filled out the ages and stages questionnaire, uh, and two and a half percent should be found to be at risk in any of the five domains of communication, gross motor, fine motor, problem solving, or personal social. Those are the five domains. And in each of those, there were a vastly greater percent at risk, ranging from uh, about 17% from uh, communication to almost 35% for fine motor deficits. We administered the Child Health Questionnaire 50 parent report form to the parents of adolescents with Fontan and found compared to the normative population, parents reported much greater uh, percents with attention problems, developmental delay, um, learning problems, and speech problems. And uh, we did in-person testing on those children. And just to highlight some of the more interesting findings, when the parent, child, and teacher completed the brief, uh, which is a, a test of executive function, what we found was much worse scores. They're high, high is bad on this test, but much worse scores uh, in executive function in adolescent Fontans uh, given by the parent, the adolescents themselves, and their teachers. And worse than both healthy controls uh, in our study and also worse than the national norms. This is especially important because what we found is that psychosocial health on the child health questionnaire is extraordinarily related to executive function ratings by parents. Uh, and uh, the R is the correlation coefficient, Spearman, is about 0.7. We don't usually see anything as high as that in the way of correlation with psychosocial variables. And I think the reason is in adolescence, parents become a lot less important, but how you relate to your friends, your peer group, how you do in school, how you measure up against other kids becomes super important. And when you don't have good executive function, uh, you can't organize your activities and it really affects your overall performance. Um, risk factors, when we looked for executive dysfunction and other forms of worse neurodevelopmental findings uh, in adolescent Fontans included having a younger gestational age at birth. So that gets back to the immature brain and the potential for worse injury during surgery. Uh, having a genetic abnormality, being on bypass for longer at the time of the first operation, having more circulatory arrest at the time of the first operation, having more operations in general, more cardiac catheterizations, more complications, uh, and a history of seizures. Those were all risk factors. Um, we also looked at psychiatric diagnoses and mental health, together with Dave DeMasso, who's our chair of psychiatry at Children's. Um, and in psychiatric interviews, we found that adolescent Fontans had a 65% lifetime incidence of any psychiatric diagnosis, compared to 22% in our healthy referent population. 
Mood disorders were not different, 13% of our adolescent Fontans versus 9% of our healthy controls. Anxiety disorders were way overrepresented, so 35% uh, prevalence during your lifetime up to adolescence of an anxiety disorder compared to 7% in the normal uh, controls. And uh, disruptive behaviors, largely ADHD, were much more common. So 34% of the adolescent Fontans uh, met criteria for having ADHD compared to 6% of our normal controls. Um, we did structural brain MRIs in adolescents on the Fontans as well and found an 11-fold greater likelihood of having any abnormality on a clinical uh, structural brain MRI with um, uh, inf infarct strokes found in 13% of the Fontan patients, none of the controls. And among those 13%, uh, uh, about a third didn't know that they ever had a stroke until they had a brain MRI. Um, these little hemosiderin lesions, these microhemorrhages, were present in more than half of the children. We also uh, did much more uh, sophisticated research studies on um, white on cortical volume and cortical thickness and found multiple areas where children with Fontan procedures had less cortical volume, just lower volume of the cerebral cortex and less thickness of the cerebral cortex. In summary, children with congenital heart disease provide a very distinctive pattern of deficits. These don't always match up very well with categories of learning disability that the schools are alert to. These children have prominent deficits in higher order integration skills, like executive function or attention. And we find that the severity of problems increases with time as the demands for such skills increase. They're more evident, for example, in high school than they are in kindergarten. And then finally, we see emerging evidence of deficits in social cognition, and these could impact social relationships and psychosocial health later in life. Uh, so Dr. Newberger, many of the children who underwent bypass are now into their fifth decade, uh, mm -hmm. and perhaps even a little older. Um, how are they doing as adults? As our congenital heart disease patients are moving into adulthood, they're also developing all the risk factors for um, adult-type neuro, sort of neurocognitive issues. They have hypertension, they have obesity and coronary artery disease. And what that does is it puts them at risk for the more adult-type cerebrovascular lesions. So you have, we think in pediatrics, about neurodevelopment, but that development stops you know, uh, latest in your mid-20s, and then you begin developing more degenerative problems and how these two risk factors, these two periods will combine is a, a great source of concern in our adult congenital heart disease population. So Jane, where are we going? Um, so the first question is, are we doing better? We've changed so many parts of what we do in the operating room and how we care for children. And I think the first question to ask is, are we improving over time? Uh, in the ICON study, 
Uh, we did a retrospective analysis of over 1,700 children in 22 countries uh, and looked at the Bailey at 14.5 months on average. And what we found is that both PDI and MDI are going up slowly. So they're slowly rising when you adjust for all risk factors, but they're still quite low. So the the improvements are relatively modest. I think what that points to is that there may be tremendous importance of genetic and epigenetic factors. Uh, whole exome sequencing, which is what's mostly been studied to date, only accounts for 1% of the genome. And so whole genome sequencing studies are underway, and I think we may find that genetic abnormalities explain a lot more than we ever thought of neurodevelopmental disabilities. And it is even possible with techniques like CRISPR, it's no longer science fiction to imagine that they might even, or some of them may even be modifiable. And then there's the, the deja vu versus vu jade. So deja vu is when uh, you encounter a new situation and you feel like you've seen it before. But vu jade, is uh, when you go into a situation that you've seen thousands of times before, but you suddenly see it anew. Uh, and I think our intensive care unit is like that. Um, these children are surrounded by noise. They have frequent painful stimuli. Uh, and um, they are exposed to phenols and phthalates, which are plasticizers. Um, we know from the preemie population that Exposure to plasticizers is found in the urine. It's uh, everything that we know about plasticizers is that they're not beneficial for your brain uh, and may be harmful. Uh, and I think that there's a lot that we can do to modify the ICU environment and a lot that we can learn about the environmental toxicities there. I think that we will be um, seeing much more science in fetal interventions whether it's maternal hyperoxygenation, uh, progesterone therapy is now being tested by Bill Gaynor's group, um, pomegranate juice may be beneficial, uh, and just avoiding early-term delivery. So we're going to learn a lot more about how to improve the circulation of the cerebral brain and how to uh, of the fetal brain and how to protect it. Um, all through the country, people are doing much more work on monitoring the brain and trying to intervene uh, on the brain based on those monitoring findings in the ICU. Um, there are great guidelines that were released by the American Heart Association uh, that, that now uh, advise pediatricians and cardiologists to do routine neurodevelopmental screening and testing of high-risk children who have congenital heart disease, and that gives one uh, the opportunity to intervene at a much earlier point, and also to educate families and patients and school systems, uh, because the phenotype in congenital heart disease is not one that the school systems are, are accustomed uh, to looking out for. Uh, we are embarking on a trial here uh, of, of the so-called COGMED uh, working memory intervention in which we're randomizing children to have this executive function and working memory intervention 
uh, that goes on for five weeks to see how it, whether it can benefit school performance. Um, and we're pretty excited about doing that. There is tremendous opportunity in the current era for multi-center collaboration. Uh, the Cardiac Neurodevelopment uh, Consort De Developmental Outcomes Consortium, or CNOC, has just been formed with many centers agreeing to collaborate and collect uh, relatively similar data. Uh, the National Institutes of Health uh, Pediatric Heart Network is doing neurodevelopmental studies across centers. The Pediatric Cardiac Genomics Consortium is just about to embark on a large study looking at the effect of mutations on neurodevelopmental outcomes. Um, the Congenital Heart Public Health Consortium Workgroup on Neurodevelopmental Cognitive and Psychosocial Quality of Life Workgroup, that's a big mouthful, is uh, looking at advocacy uh, and looking at public policies uh, for our children to see ways that, that the public can help them do better. Uh, and then a great deal of attention is going into the leveraging of existing databases like the Society for Thoracic Surgeons database and the PC4 ICU database, uh, as well as national health registries. So I, I think we're coming into just a great time for progress in the field. I'm just going to end by saying that if you take the long view, uh, the advances in congenital heart disease have really been astonishing. Children didn't survive four decades ago. And um, if you look at the majority of congenital heart disease patients, they are generally within normal limits. And in fact, there are more adult congenital patients with college degrees than those that didn't graduate from high school. Uh, and I think what we're going to do going forward is only going to make outcomes better. Well, Dr. Jane Newberger, thank you so much for sharing um, these valuable, uh, not insights, but decades of meticulous research. And on behalf of my colleagues around the world, um, I can understand why the American College of Cardiology asked you to give the McNamara Lecture, which is a very prestigious lecture, on this very subject, which you did. And um, so thank you for sharing it with colleagues around the world. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.